welcome to the Peter King Podcast. And we're going to be joined by my friend Miles Simmons. And later on in the podcast, we're going to have Ed Werder to break down everything that's going on in Dallas, the future of Mike McCarthy, the future of Jerry Jones, and why they really have to hire Bill Belichick. But, I mean, I have absolutely no idea how we're going to cram everything that's going on into in the NFL. Miles, I think what we're going to do is actually do 17 podcasts this week because as we were getting ready to do this podcast, you know, you mentioned, geez, you know, we got to talk about Tua. And I said, oh my God, I, I, I omitted Tua from the rundown and I already had 14 things on the rundown. Come on, what's wrong with me? But yeah, we're, we're going to get to Tua. But so I think... The more I thought about it uh, as we record this on Tuesday morning, the more I thought about it, the more I thought we have to talk about coaching, even though there's so much other good stuff on the field that we have to talk about. But I do think that coaching is really going to be a huge uh, factor this coming week. So we're going to talk about Nick Sirianni's future, Mike Tomlin's future in Pittsburgh, the state of Pennsylvania this week, very much in flux uh, with head coaches. Why would Bill Belichick go to Atlanta? That's just one I can't quite figure out, but we'll talk about that as well. And we'll talk about WWJD, not Jesus, Jerry. What will Jerry Jones do? We'll talk about Jim Harbaugh and the Chargers. Mike Vrabel, and where I think he's a great fit. Talk about Dan Quinn and why I think the last month has really been bad for Dan Quinn. He might go from being a guy who everybody thought was getting a job to a guy who gets you know kicked out of Dallas. Who knows? It's just a weird situation. We'll talk about Ben Johnson and the best fit for him, the Detroit offensive coordinator, We'll talk about the two teams that I think are in the worst position in terms of coach prospecting. And then we will, in the second part of the podcast, we're going to talk about the quarterback who, of the eight quarterbacks left in the playoffs, I'll tell you the one that has the most pressure on him. We're going to talk about the magic of C.J. Stroud and Jordan Love. I was in Detroit on Sunday night. And I just have one word to encapsulate what happened there. Wow. And we're going to talk about the games this weekend, but particularly focus on Kansas City at Buffalo. Uh, And then we're going to get into Tua. I don't know how we're going to do all that in 48 minutes or whatever. Uh, Our producer, Kristen Coleman, uh, will be able to put together out of this, but man, there's a lot going on. Miles Simmons, I can see you right now and your head is spinning. It's spinning around like a top. So of everything that I just mentioned, what is your one topic coming into the divisional round of the playoffs, exiting wildcard weekend that really makes your head spin the most? What really has you thinking Wow, what a story this is. What in the world happened to the Dallas Cowboys? I mean, after everything that they went through, getting the two seed, winning the NFC East, I, I'm just so confused as to how they came out 
and just pee down their leg against the Green Bay Packers. And I'm I, you don't want to take anything away from what the Packers did, right, with Jordan Love, with Matt LaFleur getting that guy ready to go and the way he's brought him along over the course of this season, the way the Green Bay Packers defense stepped up against the Cowboys offense, which, I mean, I thought it was going to be one of those games where the Cowboys just run through them through like they're going through a tin horn, but that's not what happened at all. So the Packers did a great job, but I just I don't understand what in the world went down with the Dallas Cowboys. And because that happened, that really has opened the door to Mike McCarthy being out and potentially Bill Belichick, potentially somebody else coming in. It, that one, that one's very fascinating to me. I, I agree. I, the one thing that I am thinking about most this morning is Bill Belichick and where he's going to end up. And Miles, Let's start sort of at the top of the coaching search and the coaching story. And let's start not only with the Dallas Cowboys, but with the teams that could be interested in Bill Belichick. I have gone in the last five days from thinking, hmm, is there really going to be a good market for Bill Belichick to now thinking, honestly, that that market, and again, Jeffrey Lurie, Howie Roseman, as we record this on Tuesday, could come out at any point and say, everybody, we're not going to panic here. Uh, Nick Sirianni is going to come back for another year. But I, I, I only say that because in a week where you talk about coaching vacancies, things happen. And when you hear this, you may say, what are they talking about? The Eagles just said that Sirianni is coming back. Why are you talking about this? Well, we record this. It's 9.15 Eastern time on Tuesday, and a lot of stuff is going to happen over the next day or two. So if some of it gets overtaking, overtaken, sorry about that. That's just the hazard of doing a podcast in coaching search season. But I do want to say just two things about where Belichick could land. Number one, look, Dan Orlovsky put out a great uh, post on X and he, he just said, look, I think everybody would say about, and I forget exactly his words, but I read it and he said he's exactly right, that it seems insane to fire a coach who's won 12 games three years in a row in the regular season in Dallas. Seems crazy. 36 wins, you fire him, what are you doing? And it also seems crazy that the Philadelphia Eagles <clears throat> were one series and a couple of defensive lapses away from winning the Super Bowl uh, 11 months ago. Why in the world would you think of firing the head coach? Well, S happens. And in Philadelphia right now, when I look at the Eagles, I think it's totally understandable if you want to fire the coach and start over, particularly if you wanted to hire Bill Belichick. And that's why I think that Belichick is the number one candidate in two places that haven't fired their head coach, and that is Dallas and Philadelphia, and why I'm sure he's the number one candidate in Atlanta. Bill Belichick is going to have his choice of jobs from how it looks to me. Even if Philadelphia doesn't open, <coughs> I still think he's going to have his choice between Dallas and Philadelphia or Dallas and Atlanta. So what does Bill Belichick bring? And 
to answer that question, I'm going to go back to December of 2002. I think it was. I think I have my ears right. Where Jerry Jones flew his private jet to Teterboro Airport uh, in New Jersey, which is two miles from the Meadowlands. So it is in the heart of Jersey. It's where a lot of private planes go in when they're doing business in New York. And Jerry Jones flew in the private plane, and he met for two hours in one meeting in New Jersey with Par- with Bill Parcells. And then they actually met on the airplane for another couple of hours before Jerry Jones left town. And the reason this happened is the same reason a generation later why Jerry Jones is going to want Bill Belichick. It's very simple. You want a new sheriff in town. Just when, just as the same when Jerry Jones was tired of being mediocre 21 years ago. I think this year, right now, he's tired of the early playoff exits when he has what he thinks is a franchise quarterback and a franchise defensive player, you know, in Dak Prescott and Micah Parsons. And so I think that Jerry Jones is probably thinking, I really need to shake this place up. Miles, just give me your thought on whether you think it's smart to try to go get Bill Belichick or if you think that Belichick is washed and at age 72 next year, you just wouldn't cast your lot with him. What do you think? I wouldn't cast my lot with him. And, you know, I I don't feel good saying that, but, you know, you just mentioned the age. That's one thing. But I, I would also say that if you look at the recent history, with Bill Belichick, right? Look at what the the New England Patriots have done since 2018. And when they won the, won the Super Bowl over the Los Angeles Rams, and it was the worst Super Bowl of all time. And if you look at when they replay Super Bowls on NFL Network, they skip over that one, right? Which is kind of crazy. But in 2019, <laughs> right, they still have Tom Brady. Yes, the roster not as good as it had been, and we all know that. And Tom Brady dragged that team to the playoffs, Right. But if you look at what happened the last two weeks of the year, and this is one thing where, you know, you hear different places. Oh, man. Well, if Bill Belichick was coaching the Cowboys, that wouldn't have happened. In 2019, they lost in week 17 to the Miami Dolphins, a game they needed to win because if they won it, they would have had the two seed. They would have had the bye. Instead of having the bye, they come out, they play the Tennessee Titans in the wild card round and they lose. Tom Brady throws an interception to Logan Ryan. It's the last pass he ever throws as a New England Patriot. Okay, so that's one thing where I'm saying, you know, you you can talk about how great Bill Belichick is as a coach, and he is. He's the greatest coach of all time. But if you look at the recent history, that's one thing. Then you look at 2021, right? Oh, man, Bill Belichick wouldn't get blown out in the wild card round like that. Well, you know, he did. They went to Buffalo. The Patriots got the crap kicked out of them. All right? So... I'm just, I'm looking at it, and then you pair those things with some of the coaching decisions that he's made over the last couple of years. You really want to tell me Matt Patricia and Joe Judge were the best option to run the offense? And then what do you do with Mac Jones after he was able to lead the team to the playoffs? Yeah, got blown out there, but you just completely derail his career. And then you look at what happened this year with the quarterbacks. Well, they cut Bailey Zappi, and then they have to bring him back, and he ends up as a starter late in the year. What's going on? I have no question 
that Bill Belichick is still a tremendous defensive coach, but it is all the other things that go along with it that give me a lot of pause when thinking about Bill Belichick as a head coaching candidate. I certainly would not want to give him control of the roster and all the personnel decisions. Everything cannot flow through him. That is obvious. But well, un- the rest underst- of it, I mean, understand I don't know. this one thing, Miles. Uh, understand this one thing. I don't know what's going to happen in Atlanta as far as the roster goes. Uh, the fact that uh, their uh, general manager was not included in the postseason discussions sort of makes me think that I don't know what they're going to do on the personnel side. But in Dallas, right. it's very clear that Will McClay, Stephen Jones, the scouting staff, and Jerry Jones – are going to be in charge of the draft. And if Bill, if Bill Belichick and they want their head coach to be definitely to be involved. I saw that as recently as 2016, I was in the draft room in 2016 and saw what happened. Um, And I should say, I I must be careful when I say that I, I, I saw everything that happened in the draft room in 2016 it's a weird little journalism thing that i have to be careful about but anyway i i i had access to everything in the draft room in 2016 and i saw how they do things and it isn't jerry jones picking the players uh jerry jones in fact in that year desperately wanted to make uh a trade up in the first round um to take paxton lynch and stephen jones and others argued you can't do this. We'd be trading way too much. So anyway, they didn't end up doing it. But be that as it may, I think if he went to Dallas, he wouldn't have control of the draft. And I think in Philadelphia, he would have a lot of say in personnel, but he would not control the draft. And that, to me, I want that governor on Bill Belichick. He has had horrible a horrible record in the draft in the last 10 years. Horrible. And, you know, from, uh, well, this is not the time or place. We could talk about it for 10 minutes. I'd give you 100 examples. But look, he's been bad at the draft. Nobody should hire Bill Belichick to run the personnel side, period. And if you do, you're making a huge mistake. Now, the offensive side of the ball, Miles, you're absolutely, totally right. I think if you're Jerry Jones, the one thing you want to know about Bill Belichick and from Bill Belichick, tell me what you're going to do with my quarterback to make sure he doesn't go bust in the playoffs every year. And maybe Dak Prescott is just one of those guys who when the, t- when they, when the, when the games get the biggest, he gets small. Maybe that's just who he is. But there's got to be something in the plan of Bill Belichick to see if he can make the quarterback play better in the biggest games. Having said all of that, Miles, I get it. You don't want the Bill Belichick who was nine under 500 in his last four years and probably ruined Mac Jones which I totally, absolutely understand. I wouldn't want that Bill Belichick either. So I want a plan for my offense. That's what I want. 
And I want some new ideas for coaching the quarterback. Don't bring back the same old thing. And and if if I get those answers from Bill Belichick, I want him. I don't want him for six years. I want him for three. And then let's see what happens. That's just my thought. Yeah, and I understand that too. I mean, it's not like he's not the best coach of all time, but I think in this particular cycle, Mike Vrabel is the coach that I would want over Bill Belichick just based on the results of the last few years. And I understand that things did not necessarily go well, but you look at what Vrabel did against Miami, right? Against uh, the Jacksonville Jaguars in the last game of the season and a game they needed to have, but Tennessee played like they needed it. Right. Those are the things that I look at and I'm like, yeah, I understand that this guy may not have worked out in Tennessee for whatever reason, but that is the coach that I think is the top one of this cycle. Yeah. I I think it's I think it's interesting. I think the I think all of that is an interesting way to look at it. Okay, so I would say if I were Dallas you got to go get Bill Belichick. You would not say that, which is fine. But now let me ask you this question. What do you do if your Eagles owner, Jeffrey Lurie, and Eagles GM, Howie Roseman, do you bring Nick Sirianni back or do you blow everyone other than Jeff Stoutland, the offensive line coach, out? This one's tough because... You look at the way Jeff Lurie looked during that broadcast, you know, and then I saw a clip of him on Twitter walking toward the locker room after the game. That was a guy that looked like he was considering making serious changes because he just didn't understand how in the world a team that had one loss basically toward the end of the season then finishes the way it did. I mean, you lose five of six to end the year, and then you go to the playoffs and you just don't look like any a team that is competitive at all. And for a club that was so good last year, returned so much of the same personnel, lost two coordinators, though, I think a lot of that does fall on Nick Sirianni. I mean, this is a guy who was the offensive coordinator of the Colts, and he has sort of said this, too, but for all the criticism Brian Johnson takes, right, it's still Nick Sirianni's offense. So why is it that he has not been able to elevate this unit to a way to a, to a level where it looks more consistent, where you're giving Jalen hurts more answers and all these different kinds of things. I don't know. And obviously what he did on the defensive side of the ball this year, that, that was an embarrassment, man. I mean, I, it's not like Sean Desai was doing all that well, but then to put Matt Patricia in and the defense basically gets worse. I and mean, what are you doing there? So they obviously need to get rid of at least everybody on the defensive side of the ball when it comes to coaching. That's one thing. Now, offensively, man, I don't know. I I would maybe keep Sirianni because of what he did in the first couple of years, but it, I'm t- it's about to be the shortest of shortish leashes for next season in 2024, if that's the case. Yeah, I don't think that works. I don't think it works. Yeah. When you say we're going to bring you back, but hey, you're on a short leash. If you've decided that the coach is responsible for the hellscape of the last six weeks. And, and Miles, here's, here's my thought normally, right? I don't view that you should fire a coach because of what has happened over a six-week period. 
except yeah. except if that six week period shows you that the coach has lost the team. Mm-hmm. We are not inside that team. <laughs> we don't know exactly what has happened inside that team. Right. And you've got to be close to the team to be able to see that. That to me is the issue right now. The issue is, is there a reason why starting about a month ago, they started playing like the 62 Mets? (laughs) Is there a reason? And the thing that bothers me most about this is that, honestly, Nick Sirianni basically sat there and probably said to the media what he's saying to the players, hey, Everybody would still want to be in our position. We're a playoff team. We're this. We've won all these games. We've everything. And then they lose to the Cardinals at home. They yeah. go to the Giants and they're down 24-0 at halftime. After the fire alarm gets pulled. And after the coach says, hey, listen, this is time. We have got to play well. And then going to a playoff game. Hey, everybody would want to be in our position. We're a good team. Time and time and time again, he called on his leaders, his, everybody. And look, I at the beginning of this year, I said Jalen Hurts and Patrick Mahomes. I, I'd take Mahomes, but right after that, I'd take Jalen Hurts above any quarterback in football. I wouldn't do that anymore. And I think that a lot of this is on... I don't know what quite to call what happened to Jalen Hurts this year, but I thought watching the game in Tampa, I thought that I thought of the word laconic. And he just looked 24% worse than he was at the end of last year without a spark sitting there on the bench. And I'm not saying that you have to be Tom Brady. And you have to go up and down and tell your offensive line that this S isn't good enough. Let's go. But Jalen Hurts just sits there. He's the most passive leader that you've ever seen. And and I don't know. I think Jalen Hurts has got to have somebody come in instead of somebody like a coach who's going to say you're the greatest. And, and again, there are some times when as an organization – You've got to do something drastic. Mm-hmm. And I think it might be time for the Eagles to do something drastic, but we'll see. Miles, what did you make of Mike Tomlin walking off the podium when he was asked? He, the question never even got finished. But when he was starting to get asked, Mike, you got one year left on your contract, exit stage left. So I, I'll, t- I'll, tell you, I'll just tell you what I made of it, that yeah. I buy a little bit when guys like Adam Schefter and Jay Glazer, you know, incredibly plugged in guys say, well, you never know. He could take a gap year. He could want to leave. And, and when Mike Tomlin does that, to me, all it does is add fuel to that theory. 
absolutely yeah that, that's the impression i got out of it too where it's like you know what i just i'm not answering that question right now and i'm just gonna duck the question because, like literally duck the question because i don't want to answer it and you know it was one of those things where yeah you're in the press conference somebody's gotta ask it i believe it was brooke Pryor of espn who who started asking that question so kudos to her for getting one of the most you know <laughs> interesting answers that you could possibly get out of somebody like a Mike Tomlin, which is a non-answer at all. Um, But, you know, when you look at the Steelers, man, it's, it's interesting because obviously he's never had a losing season there, but he has been there for a very, very long time. And sometimes the message doesn't quite resonate the way that you would like it to. And there was a point in the year where I thought the Steelers had the real potential to win the AFC North. You know, just based on the fact that they've beaten Baltimore, their schedule didn't look all that crazy. And then they just had this horrible lapse toward uh, the end of November, early December, where they just couldn't get out of their own way. You know, you lose to the Patriots, you lose to the Colts the way that they did. It just, it didn't look good, especially with Trubisky in there. So they found a little something with Mason Rudolph, but I think that also tells you they, A, need a quarterback. And if they don't have a quarterback, then it's going to look mostly like this again next year. And if that is the case for Mike Tomlin, maybe it is a gap year. Maybe it is, man, I've done this for so long. I've, I've, I've been the Steelers coach for years and years and years and years. And this is a time where maybe I need a change. It's not out of the realm of possibility to me at all. And it's also not out of the realm of possibility that frankly, just didn't want to answer that question right now. Because he hasn't gone through his process and he doesn't know what his answer is. And instead of saying, I don't know, he just ducks the question. So it's certainly fascinating to see. Well, the way you you make that a story, the way you make that a story is by walking off the podium in disgust. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's the way you make it a story. The way you don't make it a story is say, hey, this isn't the time or place to do that. We'll have time to discuss that next question. That's it. And that's right. I don't know why Mike Tomlin walked off, but I have my suspicions. And that is that I know what I'm doing and I don't, I, this is just my suspicion. I'm not reporting a damn thing because I don't know, but I do think that there's a lot of smoke there and we'll see what happens. It reminds me of this morning when I open up my email uh, to my column, someone named Ed Borkowski wrote me a very short and sweet email. And he said, hey, Peter, when do the Steelers receive their non-losing season trophy? <laughs> I just thought of that was so great. I really did. Ed Borkowski and look, is, I'm is one a of Pittsburgh those... name if I've ever heard one. That, what a yinzer. I love that. <laughs> I'm one of those guys who I've thought that that is a great mark of a really good coach. But... And look, if I'm the Steelers, the one thing I'm saying to Mike Tomlin, look, if we're going to run this back, you've got to go out and get some Sean McVay, Kyle Shanahan, Acolyte to to run the offense, and you get your hands off it. That's what we need. Because to me, the Steelers have an old-timey feel, which is cute and wonderful, and I love going to their training camp every year in Latrobe because of the tradition there. It's where Mike Webster and Terry Brad, Sean Franco Harris had their training camp every year, and they won the Super Bowl four times 
with the seeds being planted in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. That's a nice story, but to me right now, what needs to happen with Pittsburgh is they need to modernize their offense. Whatever yes. happens. Miles. Eric B. Enemy, another one. I hate putting you on the there. spot. I hate oh, putting you on the spot with this question because it's a ridiculous premise, but I'm going to put you on the spot anyway. What's going on in Los Angeles with the Chargers? You live out there. Come on. Tell us what is going on with Jim Harbaugh and the Chargers. And is he faded, F-A-T-E-D, to be the new guy in town, the new billboard in town for Dean Spanos? It, it seems that way, Peter. You know, that, that seems to be the way the wind is blowing. And I always find it interesting when college coaches get interviewed by NFL teams. And a lot of times they try to keep it hush-hush and all this, especially because of recruiting and that. Like, it, it makes sense, you know, from that standpoint. But there's been no question of what Jim Harbaugh's intentions are, right? The Chargers made the announcement that they had interviewed Harbaugh. And I think when something happens like that, when something happens like that, it, it it's not, you know, totally a fait accompli, but it's something where there's smoke, right? And I don't necessarily know exactly the direction they're going to go in, especially I mean, what's going to be interesting is who are they going to get to be a general manager if Jim Harbaugh is the choice as coach? I mean, obviously the stuff between him and Balky that happened in San Francisco, that's the stuff of legend. So we don't necessarily need to delve into that, but whoever is going to work with Harbaugh is going to have to make a very, very strong partnership. And it's going to be tough, but we know that Harbaugh can go in and get a program to be a winner. So I don't think it would be very surprising if Harbaugh ends up being the choice for the Chargers. I wouldn't be surprised by that at all. To me, I believe that it's the only move that they can make. They... I'm not calling him irrelevant, but when you're 500 with Justin Herbert as your quarterback and spending a lot of money on the defensive side of the ball, you've got to have somebody come in and shake the franchise right down to the roots. Um, I'll call them irrelevant. They are irrelevant. They're irrelevant in this town. They are. That's for sure. They are now. They are now, which is why you have to make a move. And look, they've always been very budget conscious on the head coach. Dean Spanos is going to have to write a $20 million check per year to get Jim Harbaugh. And he can't quibble over that. He just can't. That's the price of doing business today. Maybe it's $23 million a year. If Sean Payton is at 20 and he's got the same agent, uh, Jim Harbaugh, as Sean Payton does, Don Yee, I doubt sincerely that Don Yee is going to take less for Jim Harbaugh with the Chargers than he got a year ago for Sean Payton in Denver. But, Miles, I'm going to give you my perfect landing spot for Mike Vrabel. It's Seattle. And I'll tell you why. Mike Vrabel needs to be in a place where he can be the tough guy, the sheriff, uh, the guy who makes every player want to play for him. Because how else do you explain some of the wins they've had when they were clearly either had nothing to play for or they were out-personnelled? And I think that is what I would want in a head coach, particularly if I was very confident in the personnel side of the building. 
And John Schneider, I think, has done an excellent job overall. He's had his misses. They all have. I mean, Ron Wolf, who is the godfather, basically, to John Schneider and his football philosophy from his years in Green Bay, uh, Ron Wolf used to say, if I hit 333 in the draft, I'm happy. And he doesn't mean <clears throat> guys who make the team. He means hitting on 33% of your picks so that they become good, usable NFL players. And John Schneider has been that and more uh, in Seattle. I would really like to see Vrabel go to a place that is going to spend money and has really good personnel side. I think he should be the number one candidate there. Your reasoning for why he should go to Seattle is basically my reasoning for why he should be in Dallas. But based on the current openings, I think that, yeah, Seattle would be a good You never can tell. He might be there, right? Yeah, like that, but I, that's in, that's why, I mean, I, I just, I like the way Rabel coaches and maybe it's my background or what, I don't know what it is that makes me feel like Rabel is so good. I I don't know if it's that when they switched to Tannehill in 2019, of all people, right, he's the one that helps lead them to the AFC championship game. They were pretty competitive early on in that game against Kansas City and then ended up losing it. But still, I mean, you know, they they were the number one seed in the AFC a couple of years ago. He's coach of the year. Like this is somebody who can coach. And I think giving him the right resources, the right personnel makes him very, very attractive. I mean, a place like Atlanta, where we feel like they have a lot of talent offensively. It's just that Mike Vrabel's former offensive coordinator goes down there and then doesn't know how to use the personnel. That's one thing. But I mean, there are other places I think where if you just give Mike Vrabel the go ahead, like let go be you. Right. And you, you know, you feel like you're going to get the most out of whatever talent that you have. That that's why I think he's such a good candidate. I, so yeah, Seattle makes a lot of sense. If Dallas does open up, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, when Dallas opens up, right. I think that he should be a, a guy that people are meeting with. It, it is really just my estimation of it. If I were Washington right now, if I were Josh Harris, the one guy I would really be targeting is Ben Johnson. You have a progressive young general manager in Adam Peters who has been schooled in the John Lynch, Kyle Shanahan way for the last seven years. And to me, I would love putting my franchise in the hands of a guy who I think is a really good quarterback whisperer who's done a great job in Detroit with Jared Goff who I think is ready to take the next step. Tell me what you think about Ben Johnson and would Washington be a good spot for him? Well, if he likes one of these quarterbacks, right, whether it's Caleb Williams, Drake Mayer, both, then absolutely that's a place to go because one of the two is going to be available at the number two overall pick. You've got guys who are dudes there, right? Terry McLaurin, that's a dude, man. You know, between Gibson and and Robinson, they got at at running back. Like those two guys are really good. I mean, there are pieces there um, where you can say, yeah, I think he'll be able to make things work offensively. We'll see what he would do at defensive coordinator, which certainly would be a question. But yeah, I think the work he's done with Jared Goff has been really remarkable. And it was not really the plan going into 2021 when Jared Goff got there for Ben Johnson to be the offensive coordinator. I think this is kind of important to remember, right? Dan Campbell hired Anthony Lynn to be the OC 
it wasn't working. Dan Campbell made what I kind of thought was a bold move at the time, you know, kind of take some of those duties away from Anthony Lynn. He took over his play caller, gave Ben Johnson more duties, you know, for uh, as basically the passing game coordinator. Things started working a little bit better. Ben Johnson takes over as the offensive coordinator and the offense really takes off. Then in last year, 2022, it just gets even better this year based on the personnel that Brad Holmes has brought in there. So the fact that Jared Goff has gone from being a turnover machine, which is why the Rams got rid of him in the first place, right? I mean, he had more turnovers than anybody not named Jameis Winston, basically from the time, I believe it was 2018 through 2019, right? That that was or to, through 2020, I should say. That was really what the problem was. So if that's the case, and then he goes to Detroit, and he's been great. And this year, he's been great. On Sunday, he was great. Like Those are things where if I'm an NFL owner and I get uh, the sense that Ben Johnson is also a good leader and not just a good schemer, then, yeah, I would absolutely want him as my head coach. I think he's interesting just from the standpoint that I think he would work well with others. That's one of Ben Johnson's uh, traits. And uh, I've only met him once. Talked to him at training camp for about a half hour this year. Very impressive guy. But anyway, we'll see. And by the way, just as the Carolina and Tennessee job openings seem borderline irrelevant, we don't have time to get to them in this segment, Miles. (laughs) So, you know, that to me says everything about those two openings. But anyway, whatever. I'm sure we'll talk about them in the coming weeks. So we're going to go to break. After the break, you're going to hear my conversation with Ed Werder about all things Cowboys. And we're going to grill Ed Werder. But he's also going to tell us the story of what it absolutely, or what he thinks absolutely must happen in Dallas going forward. And we'll be back with Ed Werder right after this. Happy to be joined by my friend Ed Werder. I always think if you want to know anything that is going on, in the very complicated mind of Jerry Jones. What's my first call? Ed. Stephen Jones. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Ed, um, thanks for joining me. And can you, I want to start by saying, obviously you were in the stadium for the Cowboys meltdown against the Green, pa- Green Bay Packers on Sunday And I want to know if you can tell me two things to start. Tell me, what was the environment in the stadium as the game totally went off the rails? I know TV showed, even in the middle and late in the third quarter, masses of people bailing out on that game, which for a playoff game is something. And then I want you to morph into what you saw and felt and heard after the game as the Cowboys tried to come to grips with this preposterous uh, the way they played on Sunday? Well, obviously, uh, you know, the Cowboys go into the game uh, asking their fans um, to create whiteout 
conditions. They they had a white towel uh, with uh, Carpe Omnia stenciled on it, which is seize everything, which is the theme for this season that Mike McCarthy created uh, in the locker room, in the building, and and hope would be carried over into the stadium. Where, by the way, uh, the Cowboys have won six, had won sixteen consecutive home games, had been the highest scoring team. Uh, in the entire league at home, uh, playing a Packers team whose quarterback Jordan Love is making his very first postseason start and has nothing but first and second year players at wide receiver. Generally, the Packers were one of the most inexperienced playoff teams uh, in the field in decades. And so um, I thought that they were incredibly bold, which talking to Matt LaFleur, the Green Bay coach, before the game is what he told me. He said, hey, we are young, but we are eager, and we love to prove people wrong. And he said, I, I promise you one thing. We're going to go out there, and we're going to take our swing. And the first chance that that came when they won the coin toss and took the ball. And they were determined to score first and force the Cowboys to play from behind, which they did. The Cowboys never led in this game. The, only, the last time the Cowboys never led in a home game was when – they played a wild card game against the 49ers and got eliminated. So uh, watch Jerry Jones come down the elevator from his suite, walk very solemnly toward the locker room. Um, as he explained afterward, it was one of the most painful losses he's ever experienced because of the expectations he had for this team. And these weren't just Jerry expectations. Like everybody thought the Cowboys were perfectly set up because of an unexpected sequence of events at the end of the season, they're able to, get the number two seed. They don't have to play the 49ers or anywhere else on the road unless they play San Francisco in the championship game. It was set up for them. And then to fail the way they did, uh, I think one of the most inglorious exits in Cowboys playoff history and maybe the worst loss I've ever seen them experience. The locker room, you know, pretty quickly cleared out. Uh, we did talk to Dak Prescott at the podium. We talked to Mike. McCarthy who only spoke for like three minutes and 39 seconds after the game. Um, everybody, of course, flocks to Jerry after every game, and especially after uh, a loss like that, because he makes all the big decisions, and we want to know what was on Jerry's mind. Um, and, and I think that he was not very emotional in the aftermath of the game and assessing where this franchise stands and where it goes next in terms of Mike McCarthy going forward. Because, Peter, he had – he had four hours to rationalize the whole thing, right? He, it, it wasn't a last-second thing, and then there's Jerry talking about a loss. It was a loss from the first possession of the game, in effect. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know what to expect from Jerry, but you know, my, I think Mike McCarthy's contract was—he just finished the fourth year of a five-year deal, so this would be a natural point at which any owner would address the contract of his head coach. And so I presume that's the process that has begun right now at the start today. And as we record this, it's Tuesday late morning. And I think it's one of the, one of the things that happens in, in our business is that we jump to conclusions. I'm jumping to conclusions right now about Philadelphia. I don't know how, based on the last six or seven weeks, the Eagles bring Nick Sirianni back. But that could be rash. It probably is rash. But 
I think in in Dallas, this really kind of reminds me in a in a different way, but not altogether different. <clears throat> it reminds me of the time when Jerry Jones was a little bit. Uh, what's the right way? <clears throat> when Jerry Jones was sort of desperate to get away from a time in his franchise where he felt rudderless. And that was the time when he hired Bill Parcells. It was 21 years ago. And I think he felt like, I need to slap this franchise in the face. And I need to do something drastic. The reason why this is totally different is the Cowboys now are not coming back from 6-10. and 10. The Cowboys are coming back from three consecutive, hugely disappointing playoff exits. After going 12 and five, you know, now consistently. So you win 12 games and you fire the coach seems incredibly rash. And I just want to ask you, in Jerry's mind, make it make sense. Does it make sense to you that he could replace this coach? Well, Mike McCarthy has unquestionably taken a franchise uh, that was not a consistent winner and not a, a, a perennial playoff team under Jason Garrett and created a winning formula that, as you said, has produced three consecutive 12-win seasons. Look, the Cowboys have had three Hall of Fame coaches, if you count Bill Parcells, uh, Jimmy Johnson and Tom Landry and Bill Parcells, and none of them ever won 12 games three years in a row, as Mike McCarthy does, has. Um, but that's not necessarily a crowning achievement because it becomes more of an indictment when you look at what happened then when they got to the postseason and they went one and three, and two of the losses are at home. Um, and this one was particularly catastrophic because of what I said about how dominant they've been at home. And so if you're Jerry Jones and you look at it like, how can I turn what happened in my, our final game into something positive like, I don't see how anybody he can restore the faith of the, of, of the public in this franchise and in this coach. Um, so that's the issue. I think, what, I, I think what you're suggesting is, hey, Jerry Jones has always been an opportunistic owner. He has always believed when something is available that shouldn't be, I should be involved in trying to acquire that asset. That was his, that was his mindset when he signed Deion Sanders. One of the greatest players in the history of the game, somehow – through a, an extraordinary event, he is available, I'm going to sign him. And he did it against the judgment of his own son, Stephen Jones, whom I mentioned earlier. And so I think Bill Belichick fits that profile too. And that's where I think you were trying to leave me. Um, you know, and there, there are a lot of th reasons why Bill Belichick wouldn't work and might not accept the job here, or Jerry might decide not to offer him the job should he ultimately decide that change is definitely necessary. But can you imagine the only way to make the Cowboys bigger than they are and to make what happened the other day into a positive is to bring in Bill, Pars Bill Belichick. You're talking about combining the Dallas Cowboys and the history of this franchise and the visibility and the attention it attracts to a whole new level. Bring in the only guy who's won six Super Bowl rings and needs 15 more wins to become the winningest coach in the history of football. And, and that's what's in it for Jerry, and that's what's in it for Belichick. 
Belichick needs to two things. He wants to become the winningest coach in the history of football. And Dallas has the roster to allow that to happen. We presume in a, in, in more quickly than anybody else. Um, and it also allows him the opportunity to do what? Win a Super Bowl without Tom Brady. Guess what Jerry Jones still needs to do 30 years later? Win a Super Bowl without Jimmy Johnson's influence. And so for all of those reasons, it's perfect, right? The problem becomes to me, both of these guys' egos and are they going to be willing under the circumstances and the opportunity I just described, is Bill Belichick going to be okay, as he suggested, if somebody else handles personnel? Because Will McClay is going to do that for Jerry Jones. Um, and Stephen yeah, Jones I is going to have that role. And is he going to be okay absolute- with G- is he going to be okay with Jerry Jones twice a week being on the radio right after games being outside the locker room, holding court as he does to the detriment of the coach and his audience? Or is, is Jerry going to concede that he's willing to not do that as he did for Bill Parcells? The thing I think, Peter, is Jerry, through the Bill Parcells experience, learned a lot. He liked Parcells. He admired what he knew about football and how much he – gave Jerry Jones an education in football. But the one thing I remember his biggest takeaway was I hated that because I could not be who I want to be as the owner of this franchise. I could not engage the players the way I wanted to. I could not as the owner walk in that locker room or that weight room and, and having, uh, you know, talk to a player without potentially offending Parcells. He didn't like that whole thing, but under the circumstances, maybe that's a concession you're willing to make. I'll, I'll ask you this. I'll ask you this. Jerry Jones ha- has to be considered to be an extremely intelligent man in both street smarts and business smarts. If you were Jerry Jones right now, and one of the greatest coaches, I'm not one who blindly calls Belichick the best coach of all time. He might be, but I think... We are an extremely, uh, well, let me put it this way. People who cover pro football lead the world in recency bias. And, and and, And I'm not saying that he isn't the best coach of all time, but I'm not willing to say, oh, by the way, yeah, Paul Brown doesn't count. You know, but, but be that as it may, be that as it may. I think that Jerry Jones is such a smart guy that he conceded a lot of things when Bill Parcells came. Yeah. And Bill Parcells turned the team around, not to a champion, but made them respectable and made them pretty good again. And so that's one part of this whole thing. The second part is to think if you are Jerry Jones and you know you don't even know how many years you have left on this planet. You know, once you get to be in your 80s, you're, uh, you don't have a lot longer left in your life. And you have to ask yourself, the most important thing in my world is the Dallas Cowboys. With all respect to my family, <laughs> but the most important thing to me is the Dallas Cowboys. And what can I do right now to put them in the best position to give me that beloved next championship that I have lived the last 30 years trying to get to, or almost 30 years. So, Ed, I I understand and I respect exactly what you say. But if Jerry Jones were to sit down with Bill Belichick 
And he didn't accept Belichick's requests. You're not doing any more press conferences after the game. That's it. Those are gone. They don't, they're, they're bad. They're bad for the team. We're not doing those anymore. So you say, listen, I want that. And what Jerry could say to Belichick is he said, you're not doing personnel. That should be in the first 10 minutes of their meeting. Listen, we're not changing the way we do personnel. And I love you. And I'd really love you to be our coach. But this is the way we do personnel. And if you can't, that's the way we did it with Parcells. You will be the dominant voice. Coaches are a dominant voice in that room. But you're not going to make the picks. That's it. And if that doesn't work, we should shake hands, have a bro hug, and say see you later. But the fact that Jerry Jones might be saying and might be thinking that I really want Belichick, but I'm not willing to do what it takes to get Belichick in terms of how I would change, then he's not a very smart man. Well, Jerry is a very smart man, and he's a particularly smart businessman. Um, but he's also somebody who doesn't like being overshadowed. That experience has been bad for him every time he's had it, whether it was with Jimmy Johnson or it was with Bill Parcells. And those are probably the only two uh, coaches where that occurred. Um, so the question is, have there been enough empty Januaries for Jerry yet to make the sacrifice? Great he has question. always said, he, he's always said, I'll do anything I can to win another Super Bowl. I'll pay whatever it takes to pay. So he, so paying a coach wouldn't be, if he's being truthful, paying Bill Belichick, whatever it is, top of the scale, wouldn't matter, even though Jerry's history and mindset has always been, I don't have to pay coach, head coaches, and I don't believe in paying head coaches. There are exceptions, and certainly Belichick would be one. Um, it's a little ironic that we're judging McCarthy so harshly on recent events and recent games and overlooking what's happened with Belichick in New England most recently, where three of his last four seasons have been epic disasters. Um, but yeah, yes, I think, and I think just in general, not just what Jerry's role is and, and how public he's allowed to be is a factor. It's like Belichick's going to change the building. Like it's not going to be, the players are not going to have the relationship with the coaching staff, Belichick's coaching staff that they have with McCarthy and his coaching staff. It's not going to be, you know, a bunch of bro hugs and back slaps, you know? Um, and, and is Jerry willing to do that? Does he, is he convinced that this, that it will make the difference that hiring Belichick will result in Super Bowls? Like I said, he's going to look at it in my mind, like this guy should not be out there. And oh my God, he's yeah. there when I need him most. Now, now, is this where Bill wants to coach? He, I mean, you mentioned the roster. Jeez. How could he argue about, I'm not going to have control of the roster? Well, look at your roster in New England compared to what you're inheriting in Dallas, presumably. Agree, totally. Uh, totally. I mean, totally. they had nine, nine his personnel. <laughs> yeah, his personnel has been a, his, pers- his handling of personnel has been an abject disaster. I would argue that over the last 10 years, nobody in the NFL has been worse at forming a roster than Bill Belichick. And it's crazy to say he won two Super Bowls in that time. But his roster right now, look at his first-round picks. Look at his top picks. They are an abject disaster. You know, and, and I, I mean, this is not the podcast about that. But to me, Bill Belichick is the guy for Dallas unless he comes in 
with demands that would surprise me based on his recent history. I want to I want to end by just asking you one other question. I'm sure that I'm not alone in thinking that the big game performance playoff performance of Dak Prescott in recent years would be somewhere between worrisome and incredibly off-putting. But this is why I want to ask this question. There are sometimes when a player needs a coach to come in and to treat the quarterback, the billboard of the franchise, the no doubt number one person from a player's standpoint in the building. And a coach has to come in sometimes if, <clears throat> if, it's, if it's not working and bring him down a peg or two. And I remind you of the way Belichick, which used to totally anger Tom Brady, that Bill Belichick would treat Tom Brady like one of 53, not some exalted, you know, wonder kind. And so I'm just saying, my feeling is, if I were Dak Prescott, here's why I would want Bill Belichick. Because the kind and gentle teaching with no, you know, fingering. And look, we don't know. Maybe Mike McCarthy has been tough at times on Dak Prescott. I don't know. It's possible. But it really doesn't seem like that's the way Mike McCarthy is. I think Dak Prescott, absent somebody kind of shaking him down to his core, is not going to get to the great place that he would want to get to as an NFL quarterback. Um, well, he's two and five in the postseason, and he lost a home game in in a season where he was virtually the MVP. And I, th- I think that it's fair to say, to your point about how he's been coached and how hard it's been, I would say that the way he'd be coached by Bill Belichick and presumably Josh McDaniels, if he winds up being the offensive coordinator, um, would be harsher than he experienced with Jason Garrett or Mike McCarthy. I think that would be fair to assume. I also know that... Fair, it would be incredibly obvious, I think, but yeah. <laughs> well, like you said, we don't know what goes on behind closed doors. Yeah, um, yeah. But, but, but I also know this about Dak Prescott. He wants to be great. He, he thinks he's capable of greatness. So while I went into this last game thinking there's no way, like Dak, Dak would fist fight Jerry if he tried to fire McCarthy because he embraced this change with McCarthy. He loved Kellen Moore. Kellen Moore was his teammate since he came in the league. He was either his teammate or his coach. And yet the consequences of the loss last year were Kellen Moore's not calling plays anymore. He's out of the organization. McCarthy's calling the plays. Dak didn't like it initially, but he embraced it and made the best of it. And I, I don't think now that he would be in a position to resist the change if Jerry wanted to make it. Um, but I do think, you know, I remember when they hired John Kitna and he came to the Pro Bowl and Dak was in the Pro Bowl. Kitna gets on the bus, sees Dak and asks if he can sit next to him. And he says, sit right there and tell me how you're going to make me great. Like, I want to be great. What can you do? And, and Josh McDaniels always said that 
you know, Tom Brady was like, hey, if you're every day, every meeting, if you're not here to make me better, why are you here? And I think Dak has that quality about him. He's an incredibly hard worker. If, He's a if high indeed all that guy. is true. Yeah. If indeed that all is true, and I absolutely believe it's all true, deep down, Dak Prescott would have to be disappointed. You say he might want to have a fist fight with Jerry. Those two things are at cross purposes. That he would want to fight Jerry to bring back Mike McCarthy. Every well, that fan was who the roots last for the I Dallas said. Cowboys. Yeah. That yeah, was my uh, yeah. feeling going every, into okay. last Sunday. Yeah, yeah. Every so I just think deep down, Dak Prescott would be disappointed if they ran it back. You know, I just and, think you know I what? think if you're, the other thing, if if it's he's, he's no, I, what, he, they got a, they got a decision to make on him in the offseason too because he's going to count sixty million dollars yeah. against their cap, and you know they got Trey Lance. That's a new factor in the equation. I can't see them paying Dak sixty million dollars so they can play Trey Lance. Um, but if you're Jerry Jones, don't you have to look at it like, <laughs> you know, this is this is eight years. He's going into his ninth year, and we're still asking the question. Is he the right guy to lead us back to a Super Bowl? Like, you should know that by now, shouldn't you? And maybe Jerry is convinced that under the right circumstances, and maybe Bill Belichick is the right circumstance, that he can is capable of doing that. But this is not traditionally the way we've seen it work for quarterbacks. They don't you, I mean, Matthew Stafford is an exception. John Elway is an exception. They won Super Bowl, their first Super Bowls late in their careers. And, and so maybe Jerry does correctly believe that Dak's capable the right circumstances in terms of coaching have not yet been created for him but man did they blow a chance the other day I don't think they would have won the conference anyway I I just I think it's unrealistic to think that they're going to San Francisco and winning a playoff game I've seen that movie too many yeah. times not There's, there was no reason to yeah but, you're right but, there's no reason to think they were going to beat the 49ers uh, because they haven't in three straight years, and two of those times the 49ers end their season in the playoffs. Ed, I'll just ask you this, end with this. What what do you think the timeline is right now? What do you think Jerry's mindset is in these next few days? I think by Thursday or Friday we'll know if, uh, if Mike McCarthy is going to return as the head coach and whether it's – I don't think he's going to get a contract extension. I think, if anything – if Jerry keeps him, it'll be because he can't, he believes he can't get or doesn't want Bill Belichick, and he'll do to Mike McCarthy what he did to punish Jason Garrett, which was you're going to coach out the last year of your contract. You did that twice to Jason Garrett, uh, and 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 at some level, Jerry believed that that would bring out the best in him. It would create an urgency and a desperation, and unfortunately for him, the way it turned out, that did happen. Garrett performed his best uh, when his con when he was. Worked at, working on the last year of his contract. And that led Jerry to stay with him for 10 years uh, to no avail, never produced a Super Bowl. But I think that's 48 hours or so. I think Jerry will know whether he wants to, whether Mike McCarthy's talked him into giving him another chance. And, and I think, I think the only person he would make a change for is Bill Belichick. Although if I were him, I would also consider Mike Vrabel uh, because this team lacks toughness, especially on defense. And that's what Vrabel's all about. And Jerry does believe philosophically in the Vrabel style of football, which is, you know, hard, hard physical run team, plays great, tough defense. Um, but I really just think at this point it's Belichick or it's McCarthy. 
I think that's a gigantic mistake. Gigantic. Gigantic. I agree with you totally. If you can't get Belichick, you got to get Vrabel. But you need to make a change. You just do. You need to make a change. You cannot run this back. You just can't. Anyway, my opinion. Ed Werder, thanks so much. 15 minutes became 26 because you are a genius. Ed, Hopefully they so let me run it me. back, Pete. <laughs> See ya. <laughs> for many, many years to come. Thank you. Back on the podcast, and our thanks to Ed Werder for his insights into such a volcanic situation in Dallas. Miles, I want to start uh, our sort of looking forward to the playoffs segment by basically talking about what exactly is happening with a couple of really interesting teams in these playoffs. And I want to start with the Green Bay Packers and just really ask you as somebody who, and I watch most of that game. I was in the press box in Detroit. I didn't see it closely. Uh, And, But my view is that the quarterback of the Green Bay Packers is now carrying the franchise the same way that Brett Favre and Aaron Rodgers previously did. And oh my gosh, how quickly this has evolved for Jordan Love and the Packers. What are your thoughts? I, I would agree with that. I, I thought it was very impressive by Jordan Love. And really, it's it's been an impressive back half of the season for Jordan Love. I mean, just as much as I've watched the Packers, you know, it seems like aside from that Giants game where for whatever reason, he was just completely off. He's really taken the next steps that I think you would want and you kind of would expect for somebody who is in his fourth season. Right. That That's where, you know. I saw some comparisons to CJ Stroud and Jordan Love over the weekend. And yeah, they're both first year starters, but what makes Stroud a little bit more impressive to me is he really truly is a rookie, right? Jordan Love has had time to acclimate to this offense, to acclimate to this system. You know, he's had years of being trained by Matt LaFleur. So this is the moment where he should be taking the steps that he's taking. And that doesn't make it necessarily less impressive, but it, you know, it's a different kind of box that he's ticking, I think, than that is uh, for C.J. Stroud. And that being said, when you go to Dallas on the road, right, and you lead a dominant, dominant victory, despite what the final score was, right? You know, LaFleur took out his starters and things got a little weird in the fourth quarter, but that really was a dominant performance over the Dallas Cowboys at a place where they'd won, what, 16 straight games at home. It's why they needed the two seed, right? Because they play so well at home and so much better. And you just came in there and stopped them. And that's something I think that says a lot about Jordan Love. Yes, but also about Matt LaFleur and the way that this team has just absolutely taken on his personality and is just, hey, backs against the wall. What do we have to lose? Let's go and let's play. Let's play loose. Let's play free. I give Matt LaFleur a lot of credit. I give Joe Barry a lot of credit for the defensive approach because that defense has not been very good. I mean, they made the Panthers look good on offense this year. So that's one thing. But yeah, Jordan Love, I think, has answered every question that anybody would ever have about him going forward as quarterback. The Packers have to feel great. Jordan Love and Brock Purdy in the NFL's Final Four. Playing each other. 
Now that's that's a wow. That is an absolute wow. Let's go to one other point about the NFL's Final Four, and that is C.J. Stroud at Lamar Jackson. I think that game is absolutely, totally fascinating for two reasons. I spent some time with C.J. Stroud after the game uh, over the weekend in Houston on Saturday evening, and he said something with absolutely kind of steely eyes, and he said to me, I just never expect not to play well. In other words, because I asked him if any of this is surprising to him, how he's doing, how he's playing, how he's played the whole year. I never expect not to play well. And you might say, oh, who cares? It doesn't matter. I just, in the moment, at that moment when I was with him, look in his eyes like, are you crazy? I, I never expect not to play well. Because that was the tenor. That was the tone. And now he goes to Baltimore, where, in my opinion, Lamar Jackson is under tremendous pressure in this postseason. Lamar Jackson in the postseason is one in three. He has lost as a number one seed at home to the Tennessee Titans. Mm -hmm. And in the four playoff games he's played, the Ravens have averaged 13 points a game. So I don't think he's not going to play well uh, Saturday in Baltimore. I think he'll do he'll do fine, but the question is, if he doesn't do fine, all sorts of bad memories get conjured up, and he has to go into the off season thinking, "What's wrong with me in January?" So, to me, a lot of pressure coming in on Lamar Jackson going into that game against C.J. Stroud and the Houston Texans. Yeah, Peter, that was my favorite line from your column this week. You know, the, the C.J. Stroud, I just never expect not to play well. I mean, it, it says so much to me about the young man and what he's accomplished and how he's done it, you know. And uh, all the stuff that came out with the S2 test and all this, and know, we can't process and la, la, la. Well, watch the games, right? I mean, what has he done except go in there and kick butt? especially in the last couple of weeks where they've been fighting for their playoff lives one and then in a playoff game in the second, just, he was tremendous against the Cleveland Browns on Saturday. But when it comes to Lamar Jackson, I mean, I, I also expect him to play well, right? He should probably get the benefit of Mark Andrews coming back. You know, that's something they designated him for return um, from injured reserve last week. He got on the practice field. So if he's practicing and it's one of these games where, you know, you're trying to fight your way to the Super Bowl, kind of expect Mark Andrews to be back on the field. We'll see how how well he plays. But that's a big boost. And, you know, when when Mark Andrews went out, Lamar Jackson said it, that how much of a loss that was for the team. So the fact that he can be able to come back for the playoffs, that's only going to benefit Jackson. And, you know, they're playing at home. I'm sure that place will be rocking. And Lamar Jackson definitely needs a playoff victory at home. He's never had one. The only victory he got was when they were at Tennessee a few years ago. Um, so I, I think that it's going to be a fun game. And I can see the Texans winning in certain scenarios. But, man, I think Lamar Jackson's going to show too. something on Sunday. I think Saturday. he will too, but a Saturday, yeah. Miles, just two things about my trip to Detroit to watch the game on Sunday. Number one is how impressed I was with Jared Goff. Right from the jump, I remember one time Joe Brady, when he had been the coach of uh, Joe Burrow his last year at LSU, 
And I once asked Joe Brady about, so when you call a game for Joe Burrow, what is always impressive to me is that he comes out slinging every game. You know, and I he came came out in that huge game where they scored 40-something against Nick Saban in Alabama, and his first couple throws were 25 yards down the field. And he goes, there is no getting Joe Burrow comfortable once you start a football game. He wants right away to come out and just start storming the opposition. And that is the way I saw Jared Goff on Sunday night. There were no little dinks out in the flat to Jameer Gibbs. I mean, not. I mean, there were a couple of those as the game went on, but right away, downfield to Josh Reynolds, downfield here, downfield there. And anybody who ever has had questions about Goff, because his progression has not been a straight line to greatness or a little bit of an incline to greatness. He has had some ups and downs in a big way, even when he got to Detroit. But as Dan Campbell said after the game, hey, I'll tell you what, Jared Goff, you're good enough for Detroit, and handed him the game ball. Very impressed with Goff on Sunday. Oh, me too. Yeah. And, and you know, obviously I, I spent a lot of time around Jared Goff in his first few years in the league. So I, I firsthand saw that he is the kind of guy who will always respond, right? Whatever adversity he goes through, he will respond. And that's the kind of thing that I think makes good football players. And it's part of why he's been able to be successful in Detroit because he's had those hard times with Los Angeles in his rookie year, right? You know, with Los Angeles, then when he was replaced by John Wolford of all people, and then he has to come back in and he responds and he ends up winning a playoff game in Seattle. Like these are things that he's always been able to stack blocks with and then say, all right, yeah, that happened. I'm going to respond. And the way he came out um, in, in that game on Sunday night against the Rams, I mean, you you felt like he had something to prove. You know, he's got he's a guy that's always played with an edge. He's always had an edge. And, you know, even though things stalled out a little bit in the second half, you know, give credit to Raheem Morris, they started figuring some things out defensively. The Rams offense just couldn't take advantage of the opportunities they had. And when Jared Goff had to make a throw to win the game, Right. You know, Dan Campbell wants to be aggressive and put it in the hands of his best players. He did that. Jared Goff makes the throw to Amon Ross St. Brown and boom, it game ends. It, it was it was such a fun game to watch from you know my home in Los Angeles. And I'm sure being there, Peter, it was absolutely electric. It was great until I walked outside at 217 in the morning and it was 17 <laughs> below windshield. And I had to walk three blocks to my car. And if it was a five-block walk, I was going to be in the hospital. <laughs> but We're anyway, suffering no, here in Los was... Angeles, too. It's been in the 40s. I mean, it's just so cold. Oh, it's an outrage, an outrage. Uh, Miles, you know, the one other thing about that game. Dan Campbell told me 75 minutes before the game, he walks out of their locker room. You got to walk through this tunnel to go get out on the field. And he said it just felt totally different than any other game. I had coached 75 minutes before the game and I'm walking there. And even before I get to the field, there is this buzz. There's this noise that you'd never hear that long before the game. And this anticipation of the first playoff game there in 30 years. And he just said, the hair on the back of my neck stood up. 
Yeah. I just couldn't believe that they were already totally ridiculously into this game. And that's what you felt, Miles, in that stadium. That stadium was a factor in this game. And I'm not saying yeah. it didn't make uh, Matthew say that it, it made Matthew Stafford not play up to his capability. I thought Matthew Stafford was tremendous Brilliant. in this game against all odds because he wasn't just playing 11 Detroit Lions. He was playing 63,000 fans, and those fans were a factor. From forcing the Lions to call a, a couple of timeouts uh, because they, you know, the way that Matthew Stafford has to call when uh, it, he's, he knows nobody can hear him is he goes like this. He points to his helmet. So now it's all the visual signal. You know what the play is. So now you've got to watch me because you can't hear me call signals. So you've got to have half an eye on me to see when the ball gets snapped. And that, to me, is, is a really, really interesting way to understand how a crowd uh, can take an offense out of a game and how it can impact a game. But look, I think Matthew... St- I, 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 I thought that game, the two quarterbacks... And don't discount the importance of the emotion of that game on Jared Goff. Are you kidding me? He's got the coach over there who gave up on him mm-hmm. uh, in a it, it's a playoff game and he's got the guy playing against him who was the great quarterback in that town who was brought into that town to play in games like this and now it's Goff playing in that game a lot of pressure on Jared Goff and he played in the immortal words of Stuart Scott as cool as the other side of the pillow much much complimentary love for we gave love to Jordan Love. Now let's give it to Jared Goff. Miles, the one thing I would just say going forward is I think it's going to be hard. I think it's going to be hard for Tampa Bay to go in there. I, I'm oh, just yeah. telling you, that is a special place right now. And I wrote it in my column. <laughs> Been doing this for 40 seasons. That is among the top five combination of atmosphere and game I've ever seen covering football. And I was just so impressed with that place, that crowd. And it's one of the reasons, you know how I decided to do what I was going to do going into wildcard weekend. I understood that, man, you know, big game for Dallas. And I thought hard about going there, but I said, man, they, they could lose they could win 33 to 10 and and then what do you say what did they prove by whipping up on the 7th seed in retrospect right. would have been great to be there but in retrospect I'm damn happy I went to Detroit to see that whole scene and I just want to ask you what did it seem like what did it sound like what did it feel like on television oh man it was i mean it was obviously the game of the weekend first of all just based on the score but man you watch it and you just felt how physical it was, but it also just felt like it was two high-level teams competing at a very high level. I mean, from the throws that Matthew Stafford was making, Puka Nakua, I mean, absolutely brilliant. Puka man. Nakua, I mean, the player of the oh weekend, God. man. Yeah, I mean, oh. just he's, 
He's a bad dude. And I mean that as a high compliment. As Sean McVay would say, he is a stud. I mean, just absolutely tremendous. Um, you know, you get good plays by both defenses. No turnovers in that game. That was another thing that really stood out to me. No turnovers. Yeah, the yeah. The atmosphere, the environment was brilliant. Um, Detroit, obviously, great job doing that. And, you know, I just, I thought it was just great competition. And it's what football in the playoffs should be about. And it's kind of a shame we didn't really see that in any of the other games. But for, for that one, that was certainly the game of the weekend. Miles. I want to ask you about the quarterback of the Miami Dolphins, Tua Tonga-Valoa, in a ridiculous no-show game. And look, I I get it. I, I don't know who's going to play. I'm serious. When I walked outside, just think it was like 13 degrees colder in yeah. Kansas City playing that football oh, yeah. game. Tua Tonga-Valoa grows up in Hawaii, plays college football in the Deep South, plays pro football in the deep South. There's no, there's no preparation for what he faced in this game. So a slight asterisk for that, but playing poorly in that game wouldn't mean so much if he didn't hand the game away the previous week to the Buffalo bills and in handing the game to the Buffalo bills changed the spot of where they were going to play the first playoff game and perhaps the second playoff game, as it turns out. Because if they win the first playoff game against Buffalo, then they face Kansas City in the second playoff game in Miami. So that, to me, is the moral of the story of this season. I think Mike McDaniel fell to earth a bit with his urban legendary status as a coach. And, you know, I this is a little bit picky, Miles, a little bit picky. But I don't, I've watched a lot of the Hard Knocks series with the Dolphins, which has been tremendously enlightening. They picked a really good team. But there's something about Mike McDaniel and the cursing that just kind of, I don't know what it is. Rubs me the wrong way a little bit. Okay. Because it's Mike McDaniel kind of trying to be a player. I and look, that's a little weird to say, but I think if you curse 17 times in an, in a minute and 40 seconds, you're sort of losing the effectiveness a little bit. I don't that's just me. Just me. And it's ridiculously picky, but that just turns me off a bit to hear a coach talk like that. I, I I don't know. I don't know. But anyway, the legendary status of Mike McDaniel took a little hit down the stretch, but I do think his quarterback needs to take a lot of, or needs to take the brunt of that criticism. He did not play well down the stretch of this season. Now, the Dolphins are going to have to make a choice with Tua Tonga-Valoa. And to me, I might want to stretch out that choice. I might not want to pay him a jillion dollars for the next five years this offseason. But we'll see. What say Miles Simmons? I I would not want to pay him that much for the off, uh, this offseason either. The, the issue is going to be whether or not he forces the issue, right? And we saw a couple years ago with Kyler Murray where, you know, his agent released that manifesto on Twitter where the font was so fine. Yep. I mean, like, you needed a magnifying glass to say it, right? So that 
that's forcing the issue. We kind of figured last year that Joe Burrow, that uh, Justin Herbert, they would force the issue. Obviously, same draft class as Tua Tonga-Vailoa, who did not force the issue last year. But this is an offseason where you know, the league in passing, you understand that there are some things there where if he wanted to, he could force the issue. And if that happens, I mean, what's the compromise level, right? Tua Tonga-Vailoa has shown that he shouldn't be paid, you know, 50 million plus. Right. I, I think that, that it's just it's not there, at least for me. But if you're getting into low 40s and that's something that you could agree upon. All right. I, I can see that. But that's where it's like, you know, you have the top tier quarterbacks that are being, you know, that are the elite guys that are being paid as much as anybody. And then you know, maybe there's another tier. And that probably is where Tua Tungavailoa could fit. But. I mean, you have him under contract. It's guaranteed for next year, you know, with the fifth-year option and all that. But beyond that, I there should be questions about Tonga Vailoa because it's not just, you know, the way he played against the Bills. You go back a few weeks before, right, and keep talking about Mike Brable. He keeps popping up. But you that performance against the Titans also was just not good enough. And right now, there's just this sense that if you get really physical with the Dolphins, right, if you throw off their timing in any way, then Tua Tungavailoa is not going to be able to do the things that he does best. He doesn't do the improvisation as well as some of these other guys, you know, the Josh Allens, the Patrick Mahomes, even Joe Burrow, right? That's not where he's at. Lamar Jackson, obviously another one. Right. So that's where, if you're Miami, you really need to examine, is he the guy that we can pay X amount of money and why would we do it? And how good is he going to be? And how can we make him better in those situations where the timing's a little bit off? Because that that's where I'm I look at it and I know it was brick cold in Kansas City, and like that's tough for anybody. But Kansas City's also very physical, especially on defense. So that's where they need to get better in that way. And I think Mike McDaniel's gotta be a little bit better in that way as well. Miles. Tell you what I think is the game of the weekend. I think it's Kansas City at Buffalo. One of the reasons that I really like this game a lot is because, obviously, of the two quarterbacks. And Patrick Mahomes and Josh Allen have played each other six times. Mahomes three, Allen three. In those six games, the two sides have been separated by four points. And each guy has played very well overall in these games. Allen, in fact, has a 15-3 to touchdown-to-interception margin. Um, and uh, Mahomes is 13-5. to So both of them good in that regard. Allen exemplary. But I think this game, it sounds funny to say because everybody say, well, you know, Bills have home field advantage. I don't think it matters at all that the Bills are going to be playing at home. And and look, they've played five consecutive times in Kansas City. They've only played one time in Buffalo, and that was back in uh, in early 2020. So this is going to be a different feel to this game, in my opinion. It's Ali Frazier slugging it out. I think that it's going to be, obviously, it's going to be close. I don't think either side going in here has an edge. I think the one factor 
in this game. And I really want to see how this plays out. I think the Buffalo Bills, it's amazing to see them in the final eight based on the number of injuries they have had, particularly on defense. They seem to get two guys carted off every game. Seriously. And I just wonder how representative that defense can be. This is not the Steelers who you're playing this weekend and Mason Rudolph. This is Patrick Mahomes, (laughs) who's going to probably go down in the post-Brady-Manning era as the best quarterback. And this is the guy who's going to make this a hard game. I mean, how do you see it going in, Miles? Oh, I, I see it as the game of the weekend, right? And it is the last game of the weekend there on Sunday uh, evening. So that makes it great in, in and of itself. Um, but, you know, one of the other factors in this, and you mentioned the defensive injuries for the Bills, rest, right? I mean, the, the Chiefs have two extra days on uh, the Buffalo Bills. And I know that they've got to travel and Buffalo great doesn't. Point. And, you know, yeah. everything that happened in Buffalo is crazy. And, you know, we can debate the merits of not putting a roof on their next stadium. But I think um, one thing that you look at, if they, if the chiefs get rest, right. If they are that much more healthy coming off that brick cold game in Kansas city, and then going up to Buffalo, that really could be something that could give you that just that little bit extra bit of juice that you might need in the fourth quarter. And you know, Isaiah Pacheco runs it really, really well. The thing that I, I liked about the Chiefs is that they did not have a turnover when the game was still in the balance, right? Yeah, Clyde Edwards-Alaire had that fumble at the end of the game. Didn't necessarily matter as much. But the fact that they didn't have any turnovers, Rashi Rice went off, you know, the best young re- rookie receiver outside of Puka Nakua, perhaps. Or at least, you know, that's something that we can talk about. But I think one of the things that the chiefs have to do well is protect the football again. And if they don't, then Buffalo is going to be able to take advantage of it, but you, you have to be able to run the ball well, protect it. And then when you have the opportunity to make a play, make a play can't have as many Travis Kelsey drops as he had on Saturday night either, because like the, the bills are going to take advantage of that. The one thing that I was thinking about last night when anticipating this matchup I remember it's now 10 weeks ago in Frankfurt, Germany, seeing Patrick Mahomes in the locker room after they eked by the Dolphins 21 to 14, and that included a defensive touchdown. So they only scored two touchdowns on offense. And you could tell that Mahomes was frustrated, but he looked at me like he was a politician trying to convince me to vote for him in the election (laughs) coming up. And he looked at me and he said, Peter, we will figure this out. We will figure this offense out and we are going to be okay. And I just thought that day, that's whether or not Patrick Mahomes in the bowels of his soul really feels that way and whether he felt that way that day, I think he probably did. I think that really seeps into the psyche of your team. And I think it means that at some point, whether it be Rasheed Rice, whether it be Sky Moore, whether it be Justin Watson, whether it be Marquez Valdez-Scantling, 
Patrick Mahomes was going to figure out, quote, his guy, who that was going to be down the stretch of the season. And I think we saw with Rasheed Rice's performance uh, at Ice Station Station Zebra the other day, I think we (laughs) saw the... uh, the, the the maturation and the work, quite honestly, that Mahomes has put in with his young receivers. So I expect him to be the key guy and the focus of what Buffalo does on defense in this game. But hey, it's going to be really fun to watch. Miles, we've gone so far over our time that Kristen yeah. Coleman, who's the greatest podcast podcast producer in NFL history, is just She's shaking her head and just saying, how am I going to put all this horse crap together? Anyway, I think it's time for us to duck out. You've been a great co-host this week. Thank you. And to everybody out there who listen, sorry we went overtime this week, but if there's going to be a week that we talk too much, I think it's going to have to be the week after the wild card round and before the divisional round when there are there are 900 topics we didn't even get to but hopefully we'll get to a few of those next week miles simmons thank you enjoy the weekend's games i will too and we'll see everybody back here next week with a new episode of the peter king podcast